Well, it's good to be back this week in the pulpit, bringing the Word of God. I got to listen to last week's sermon, and wow, quite a Puritan sermon that was. It was great, wasn't it? I think Joey needs to, needs to preach to us more often. A wonderful sermon on biblical friendship. But today, I've got to warn you, a very controversial topic, a topic we've already been singing about. You might not realize it, but it's very controversial to say that we're worms. You remember we sang, such a worm as I, or we're sinners through and through. And even read about it in Scripture where, where Jesus said that those who believe in Him are going from death to life. They've come from death to life. But to speak of the unbeliever as a dead sinner who can do nothing towards God is not something preached enough in Christianity today. So I invite you to open to chapter 2 of Ephesians. As we've been uh, making our way through Ephesians, verse by verse, passage by passage, we come to this teaching in the first three verses of chapter 2. And I just want to read it to you. Just listen to what he says. It shouldn't be controversial, but, but something in us, even as Christians, we want to resist this teaching. And it's clear. It's right here in Scripture. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of the flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Oh Lord, bring this passage to our minds and our hearts this morning. Help us to see the truth of what's here. Lord, it is a true word. It is your true doctrine that teaches of the state of man. And we pray, Lord, that all we hear this message, whether believers or unbelievers here today, we will understand what it means to not be with Christ. What it means about us. What does this passage teach us, Lord? Help us to see that in Christ's name. Amen. Paul is commenting. He is teaching here on the state of mankind. What is the state of mankind? How, how does an unbeliever actually think? How do they live? How can they come to God? Can they come to God on their own? Can they make a choice? What about free will? What about our natural state have we inherited something from adam or are we fine and able to earn our way to god generally in church history i love church history so i'm going to start off by giving you a quick church history lesson on the views that have been around in christianity since really the time of the apostles we already see near the end of the bible these false teachers coming in and saying various things well there's been three views on the natural state of mankind towards god Three views. What are we like since the fall of Adam and Eve? The first view says we're healthy. We're in a healthy state before we come to Christ. This is called Pelagianism by the famous Pelagius who, who propounded, who preached this message. And this view says the natural state of every human being is spiritually and morally neutral. We're born just like Adam. When Adam was created, that's the same state we're born into, the ability to choose right from wrong. Adam did have that time where he could choose, and then he fell into sin. But, but people who say we're healthy in the natural state would say that Adam's effects of sin, inherited sin, they, they have no effects on our mind and on our will. And this has been deemed heresy throughout Christianity, that we are neutral and we can somehow do good, obey God, with no help from God at all, and somehow earn our way. That's what Pelagius taught. We didn't really need the cross if you just obeyed. That's works righteousness. All branches of Christianity have rejected that view, but it keeps popping up over and over. Charles Finney in the 1800s brought that back. And he went out in America and he preached in the 1800s and he, he told people to come up to this bench, come up to this altar, pray this prayer. And you can decide, and you can do it, and you can come to Christ. And it just keeps coming back. So that's the view that we're healthy. The other view, uh, another view is that we're sick. We're not completely healthy, but we're just kind of sick. 
It's called a semi-Pelagian view. This came about in the Middle Ages with Roman Catholicism. And they say that the natural state of every human being is, is spiritually and morally sick because of sin. So we're not healthy, but we're just sick, they would say. And that we can, though, make the first move to God. We can make the first move to Christ. There's still some of us that's good. And if we're just given an opportunity, we will do the right thing. We will come to Christ. We will believe upon Jesus without any steps that God has to take first. You take the first step, they would say, towards God, and then he'll do the rest. It's popularly said like this, God helps those who help themselves. The third view, which I think is the biblical view, as we just read here, we're not healthy in the natural state. We're not sick in the natural state, but we're dead. We're dead. Augustine, uh, or Augustine, if you want to be Southern, Augustine uh, said and wrote against Pelagius many books early in church history and said that we cannot take the first step towards God. We cannot obey God unless he gives us his grace first. Later, the reformers would pick this up, especially uh, John Calvin. But it really is the biblical truth. You are dead in your trespasses. It means that, that this view says that, that we're spiritually dead and blind, unable to obey, unable to believe, unable to repent because sin controls our heart, our mind, and our will. We don't have the natural ability to come to God. We don't have the natural ability to believe upon Christ without God's grace. That's the big controversy. I mean, you can just go right down that list and, and almost nail every uh, denomination, every heretical cult, every works righteous system out there. Do they believe man is healthy, sick, or dead, spiritually speaking? Now, Paul is going to tell us here that we are dead. We are completely spiritually dead. But before he got there, remember in chapter 1, he was speaking uh, to believers and he was saying, look, we have been Blessed by God. If you're a believer in Christ, he said, that God has done it all. God has elected. God has predestined to adoption in his son. God has redeemed through the death of his son. And God has sealed believers with the Holy Spirit. It's all been of God. That's all he talked about in chapter 1, verses 3 through about 14. It's all of God. And then he begins in verse 15 of chapter 1 to, to pray for believers, to pray for the Ephesians. And it works the same, things that we, we need today as well as the Ephesians needed back then. He gave thanks to God for their salvation. Then he began to pray that they would know more about God. This is our God. This is the God we worship. We need to know more about him. So he prayed that they would have the, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, given to them in a greater measure so they can understand who God is. And he goes through various things that they need to know about God. And he ends chapter 1 with this, exposition of God's power. Verses 20 through 23 was all about God's power. So a couple of weeks ago, we looked at that. How powerful is God that he could raise Jesus Christ from the dead, that he could seat him at the right hand of God. They could put all things in creation under Christ's feet in subjection. And he gave Christ his head over the church. And then we pick up now in chapter two and notice the first word, and and you were dead. So he's still talking about God's power, not this God's power in Christ, which is amazing and we should be thankful for, but it's also working in you. And you still talking about God's power. So uh, the first point in the outline, uh, there's going to be three main points and a few sub points, but the first thing I want you to see here in this passage is that we're dead to salvation. I've entitled the sermon Dead Men Walking. Because, first of all, we are dead to salvation in our natural state. That's what he says here. You were dead in your trespasses in verse 1. You were dead. And, and really, the, the translation helps us a little bit because it's all one sentence in Greek from verse 1 all the way down through verse 7. So we don't have a verb. Uh, we could literally translate verse 1 like this. And although you were dead in your trespasses, now he's going to talk about all of that. And it's not until we get to verse 5 that he picks up the main topic. And we'll cover that next week. But in verse 5, he says that God made us alive together with Christ. Although you were dead, God made us alive together with Christ. And so he's giving an exposition, a teaching on what it means to be dead in our trespasses and sins. He's saying you. He's talking to the Ephesians, but it's every believer. 
you were this. If you're a believer in Christ today, this passage describes you. This is who you were. Every unbeliever today, this passage describes them. Every believer has had this at some point in their life. Even if you're saved young and you don't remember this, this is the natural state that you were born into. He says we're dead. Dead. Necros. Dead. Usually a physical death. The word necros, we even use it sometimes in English. Necro means death. But here he's talking about spiritual death. And we know what that means because we know physical death. And this is an analogy to spiritually being dead. Before God acted in his grace toward you. You were dead, he says. Dead. You had no life towards God. You you had no good moral and spiritual life towards God. You were just dead. Not sick, he said. He didn't say sick. He doesn't say severely sick, but completely and absolutely dead. But with no ability to live for God. Both Jew and Greek. Unable to respond in faith. Unable to respond in obedience. You cannot tell an unbeliever you must obey the Ten Commandments. I mean, you can try. You can try to convict them by God's law. That's a good thing. That might be a, a way of evangelism. But an unbeliever cannot, in their own selves, obey God. Not until they have a heart change. Not until they've been made alive in Christ, because they're dead. Genesis talks about this early on. Uh, God says to Adam, but... Uh, If you eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, in that day you eat from it, you will surely die. Now, they didn't die the day they ate from it. What's he talking about? Well, in the the original Hebrew, it's in dying, you will die. And what that means is that spiritually, they died immediately when they took that bite. They took that bite of the fruit and they died spiritually immediately. Now, it's not for hundreds of years later that they died physically, but that's just to confirm the fact that You know, people are born spiritually dead. And they were not born that way. They had the opportunity to choose to do the right thing, and they didn't. And ever since then, ever since then, mankind has been spiritually dead in their natural state. Remember Jesus, when the guy came up to him and said, Oh, Lord, I would love to follow you, but first let me go bury the dead. Or probably he was saying, let me wait around till my parents die, and then I'll come follow you. What did Jesus say to him? He said, allow the spiritually dead, allow the dead to bury their own dead. Allow the spiritually dead to hang around and bury the physically dead. But as for you, he says, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Don't give me excuses. If you're spiritually alive, then let's go. But if you're spiritually dead, then hang around and wait for something else to happen. Now, some people will say to this, I I wasn't dead. I mean, I'm a Christian today, but I was able to choose God on my own free will. I mean, I did choose him, right? I wasn't really dead. This must be hyperbole. You know, sometimes we have some hyperbole in Scripture. Maybe the objector would say, this is hyperbole. He's just talking about the worst people out there. You know, the Hitlers, the the evil, you know, Joseph Stalin, those kinds of people who murder in their own death row. That's who he's talking about here, right? What does he say? You were dead. All the Ephesians he's writing to. And then look down at verse 3. What does he say there? We... We, we, you see that? Who's, who's the we? All the Ephesians plus Paul. We too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh. Let's go back to Romans chapter 3. That's really the parallel passage to what we see here. Paul in Romans 3, starting in verse 10, he goes back to the Old Testament. He proves his case. How can we all be dead? Certainly it's not everybody, is it? Romans 3.10, he just starts quoting from the Old Testament. Mostly Psalms, he throws in one passage from Isaiah. Let's look at it, Romans 10, I mean Romans 3, 10 through 18. As it is written, where? In the Bible, in the Old Testament. There's none righteous, not even one. There's nobody righteous. What about me? I, I had to have some righteous. I mean, my aunt, she's not an unbeliever. My, my grandma, you know. He says there's none righteous. Whatever good you saw in people who don't believe in Christ, don't follow Christ, that's not good towards God. It's not good for the right reasons because there's none righteous, not even one. Just in case we weren't clear, he goes on, right? There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. Don't people seek God? They seek their own God. They seek the God in their own image, the Bible says. 
They're, they're looking for a God that will bless everything they do in life. How many people today say they believe in God and they completely live a life of sin? They support it. They go out and march in the streets to support sinful lifestyles. That's a God of their own making. He says here, there's no one actually seeking for God. He's just quoting from Psalm 14. All who've turned aside, all have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There's none who does good. There's not even one. Their throat is an open grave. But their tongues, they keep deceiving. The poison of a asp is under their lips. Everybody's just speaking in a sinful way. And they're slandering and they're gossiping. And, and there's no one, he says in verse 12, that does good. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their past. And the path of peace they have not known. They don't know how to come to God and be at peace with God. Because there's no fear of God before their eyes. And then he goes on to present the gospel and justification by faith. Everybody is like that. No one gets out. Jesus Christ is the only exception. No person born in the flesh, no human being since Adam and Eve, except for Christ, is without this dead in trespasses and sin. We all are dead. We all are dead. Our 2 Corinthians 2.14 says, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? Because he's a natural man. He doesn't accept anything spiritually from God. For they are foolishness to him. And not only does he not accept them, but he cannot understand them, Paul says, because they are spiritually appraised. Without the Spirit, you can't even understand Scripture. You can't understand the Gospel until the Holy Spirit does something in your heart, Paul says. Well, where is this dead spiritual body? Back to Ephesians 2. Where is it? I mean, what makes it dead? Why is it dead? We'll come to why and what makes it that way. But first, he said, it's a dead body in trespasses and sins. It's in the realm of trespasses and sins. It's a dead body laying there in that oozing, toxic waste of trespasses and sins. That's the picture he's making here. It's putrefying. It's rotten. Dead in your trespasses and sins. Not because you sinned are you dead. You're already dead, he says, and you're doing trespasses and sins in that spiritual death. This is the opposite of being alive in Christ. You're in Christ. You're not dead in your trespasses. You're alive in Christ. He'll get to that in verse 5. You're alive in Christ. That's the believer. Before you came to faith in Christ, before God changed your heart, you're dead in trespasses and sins. What do these two words mean? Are they the same thing? No, I think they're different here. Trespasses, they're used in the Bible to describe acts which deviate from God's revealed standard. Basically doing unrighteous acts. Things you know are wrong. Even as a Gentile, we don't have the law of God, but we have a law in our heart, Romans 2 says, and we don't care, we just do what we want. We know it's not right. People have told us it's not right, and we just do it as unbelievers. When you were an unbeliever, that's a trespass. You, you cross the boundaries. When people trespass on your property, they cross your boundary. When you trespass against God, you cross the boundaries that he set in his law. And then in sin, sin means missing the mark that God has set for his creation. God has set a certain mark. Be holy as I am holy. We are to be holy because God has created us and we're to follow our God, our creator. But sin has the idea, it's a hunting term for shooting an arrow and not, not going far enough. We all miss the mark. Romans 3.23, we all fall short of the glory of God because we're all sinners. We've all sinned, so we fall short. All of us. Some of us sin more than others, but it doesn't matter because we all fall short. We all can't get to the mark, which is perfect holiness. Jesus told the Pharisees, you've got to be perfect, like my Father in heaven is perfect. It can't happen unless we have first a heart change, unless we have God's grace. We are dead in our sins and trespasses. How can, how can a dead man rise up and come to God? How, how can we exercise our free will when we're dead? Did, did Lazarus exercise his free will before Christ had come forth? Was he laying there in his body thinking, you know what? I think I'm going to get up and walk out and see Jesus. Or did Jesus say, come forth? And then he got up. It was the power of Jesus that brought him back to life. And it's the same in our hearts. It's the power of Jesus that brings us back to life because we're dead. And neither has any person ever chosen God and then followed God of their own abilities. God changed their heart first, the Bible says. 
He made us alive in Christ first. Every person in their natural state after Adam and Eve fell. Every person is born completely unable to please God, unable to choose God, or to even make the first steps. I'll give you a few more verses on that. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Who are those in the flesh? Those who have not been born again. Those who are not in the spirit. The natural unconverted man cannot please God. Jesus says in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. You don't have Christ, you can't do anything. What does that mean? Can't go to work, can't take care of your family. No, you can do those types of things, but you can't come to God apart from Christ. He gives the power to do it. All your righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, Isaiah says. Even what we call righteous according to society's norms, according to our own views, they're filthy rags, they're bloody minstrel rags. They're just throw them out in the trash. That's the idea that Isaiah is putting forth. And also, no one can come to me, Jesus says, unless the Father who sent me draws him. Why? Why can't we come to the Father? Because of this. We're spiritually dead. Spiritually dead. So the unbeliever is dead. He's not sick. He needs a resurrection from the dead, not some medicine. We, we don't take the Bible and just give them a little medicine and hope that they'll be revived. They need the Scripture proclaimed so that the Holy Spirit can work through that and bring them back to life. So that's number one, dead to salvation. Number two... Not only are they dead to salvation, but they're also living in a sense. They're living for sin. We were living for sin before we were saved. All unbelievers today are living for sin. This is why it's dead men walking or the walking dead. It's, there's no real zombies, but they're spiritual zombies. They're spiritual zombies. They are dead and they're walking around living in sin. Spiritually dead, but they're walking around living in sin. Look at verse 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. He's using another figure here to to explain what a believer's life was like before Christ. Before they came to Christ, you formerly walked in those sins. You're dead to sin, unable to move when it comes to spiritual matters, but you are alive to one thing, and that's sin, he says. You were alive to sin. The idea of walk in the Bible has to do with your lifestyle. So later, Paul's going to say, walk in the Spirit. Live a life, a lifestyle that's in the Spirit, that's pleasing to God. You can do that as a believer, but as an unbeliever, you can't live a life pleasing to God. We just saw that you cannot please God in the flesh. And Paul's just saying, you're living, you were living in sin believers before God changed you. You walked around in your life. Your lifestyle, your conduct, your behavior was one that was always pointed towards sin. There's where we have a free will right there as an unbeliever. As unbelievers, we can decide how much we're going to sin today and tomorrow. When we were unbelievers, we had a free will to choose how much are we going to sin. Now, ultimately, even that is in the sovereignty of God. But we did not have enough of a free will to overcome the deadness to sin. So Paul's going to open this up now. He's going to say, you are walking around living in sin. And I'm going to show you in three ways how you did it, he says. First of all, you are living for sin in the world's path. In the world's path. Our text says, according to the course of this world. Whenever you see according to in the New Testament, that's a standard. A standard by which something happens. We want to live by God's standard, but an unbeliever lives by the standard of the world. The course of this world. Literally, the word course isn't there Our translation helps us. It's the age of this world. You walked around and lived according to the age of this world. According to the world's standard. And the world here is not every person who's ever lived. The world here is a theological system of opposition to God. The evil, sinful world. The world that we're going to find out Satan controls. But it's an evil world. It's a world of the flesh. It's a world of doing what people want to do. That's how an unbeliever walks around. That's how they live. Whatever the world says, that's what we do as unbelievers. That's what you care about. You care about pleasing the world, pleasing your friends, pleasing your family, pleasing your government, uh, pleasing whatever false religion you're in, earning something, getting rewards, getting a pat on the back, according to the world. The age of the world now. There's an age coming where this won't be the case. That's the age of Christ's return. But in this age, we are walking, our unbelievers are walking according to the world. 
He's going to pick this up more in Ephesians 4. Turn over to Ephesians 4. In verse 17, he's going to explain. What does it mean to, to walk like this according to the world? Well, this is how the Gentiles have always walked, he says. It's Gentile and Jew, but specifically the Gentiles who didn't even have the word of God. Uh, chapter 4 of Ephesians, and verse 17. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer. They used to walk like this, but no longer. Just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God. You never want that to be said about you. Excluded from the life of God? Because of the ignorance that is in them. Yeah, every unbeliever is ignorant of the things of God. Because of the hardness of their heart. The, the longer they go as unbelievers, the harder their heart gets. And they harden it themselves. And they, having become callous, there's a big callousness over their heart, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. That's not the way that a, a Christian should live, but that's the way an unbeliever lives. If indeed you have heard of him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus. And he goes on to tell them not to live like that. Don't live like that. It's sinful. It's not a way that a believer should live, but it is a way that the unbeliever lives. The natural state of man is to follow the course of this world. John says in 1 John, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh... The lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. You don't have friendship with the world, James says. James says friendship with the world is hostility towards God. That doesn't mean we don't love the lost. It doesn't mean we don't want to proclaim the gospel to the lost. But you don't love the world in that you want to be like them. Too many Christians want to follow the world. Whatever the world says, that's not what the Bible teaches. That's who we were, not who we are now. Unbelievers follow the course of the world. That's where we were before Christ changes. That's a, a path we want to avoid now. A world that loves sin. A world that celebrates homosexuality. A world that celebrates abortion. Killing of innocent babies in the womb. A world that celebrates every type of sin that can be named. A world that really is calling the right things wrong and the wrong things right. The course of this world. Secondly, how did we once live before Christ changes? How do we live? In the devil's power. Now, some Christians can, can deal with the fact that they lived according to the world, but to think that the devil had influence and control over us, that's what he's saying, according to the prince of the power of the air. That's another standard. According to, how do we live? According to whatever the world says is right and according to what Satan wanted us to do. Unbelievers are living just as Satan wants them to. Now, they won't tell you that. I mean, there's a few Satan worshipers out there. But most will not say it like that. They, they know enough, in America at least, to know that you know, Satan's evil and I'm not, I'm not following him. But this says that an unbeliever is walking according to Satan's power, Satan's will. Satan is the ruler. He's the prince who has power over de a domain. He has authority. He has a power over a domain. What is that domain? Well, it's called the air here. The air here in context is just the space above the earth, the sky, the lower atmosphere, not, not heaven where God is, but all over the earth. Satan can travel spiritually. He can move quickly wherever he wants to go. His domain is the earth. And he uses his influence, he uses his power to control unbelievers. Not just demonic possession, but influencing their mind, their heart, their desires. Tempting them, of course, but, but just influencing them. The devil's not down below somewhere in hell. When people say that, that's not biblical. The devil is not down below under the ground in a hot, fiery place called hell. And he's just torturing people down there that went down there when they died. The Bible never talks like that. He's going to be in hell when Christ returns. And, and after the thousand year reign, Christ is going to throw him into hell, the lake of fire. But he's roaming around. He, he's like a lion, Peter says, waiting to devour Christians. And he is having a filled day with non-Christians. 
How does this happen? How does the prince of the power of the air control people? Well, Paul goes on to say, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Satan's not only ruling over the air and sort of the political realm of the world, but also he's ruling over the hearts of people. Anytime we see the word spirit, you have to figure out what is he talking about here with spirit? We've already done that in chapter one, but this is not spirit as in Satan the spirit. It's saying that the prince rules over the power of the air and of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. The spirit, a a human attitude, a human spirit. The spirit of the age, the zeitgeist. You might have heard that term, German term. People use today zeitgeist. The general moral, intellectual, and spiritual climate of the era. He's ruling over the world. He's controlling the culture. He's controlling the governments. Now it's all under the sovereignty of God. Just read Job and you'll see that. But what Paul's pointing out is unbelievers, we were, we were living like Satan wanted us to live. We did exactly what he wanted us to do. He controlled our attitude. He controlled humanity's general spirit, attitude, spirit of the age. And he calls us, Paul does, we were sons of disobedience. He's now working, even now. He's still working, even now, in the sons of disobedience. Not just unbelief. He's not saying the sons of unbelievers. That's true. But sons of disobedience. The idea here is that unbelievers don't obey God. They don't obey the gospel. They don't obey the commands to come and believe in Christ Jesus as Savior. And they're sons of it. They're they're born out of it. They're just born out of sinful humanity. And they want to run and disobey God. Just run on in that lifestyle until judgment. That's where we were headed. Sons of disobedience. Not merely unbelief, but disobedience. Obstinate opposition to the divine will of God. In the Old Testament, this idea of sons of disobedience is found in the Old and the New. So it comes from the the Hebrew Scriptures. And they use it to describe someone that had an essential and innate disobedience of rulers. And in the New Testament, it's to the gospel. To the gospel. Sons of disobedience to the gospel. The only way of salvation. Why, Why, when you first heard of Christ, did you not come to him? Most people don't. Why? Because they're sons of disobedience. Now, there are a few that God decides to change the first time they hear. But many of us heard. Many of us heard and we hardened our hearts. We closed our ears. Why? Sons of disobedience. That's a family relation when he says sons. That's a trait the, the sons, the source, the, the thing that springs out of them is disobedience. And Satan's ruling over all of that. He's controlling the spirit of the world. The human spirits that are following him, even though they don't realize it. He is the prince. People say, well, I'm not a Satanist. An unbeliever might say that. I'm not a Satanist. Why are you saying that I worship Satan? You don't have to outwardly worship him to be following him. You know why? Because he blinds people. He puts blinders on and they don't realize they're following him. It's like somebody who follows a a false teacher but doesn't realize it. And and then later they wake up and realize, I should have been following, you know, Joyce Myers. Should have been following Benny Hinn. So a false teacher, 2 Corinthians 4.4. The God of this world. Do you know who that is? Who's the God of this world? Who's the ruler of this world? Satan. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Blinders on. So how, how did we once walk before Christ? In the world's path, in the devil's power, and then there's one more, in the lust of the flesh. The world, the flesh, and the devil. The unholy trinity, some have said, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Verse 3, Ephesians 2, 3, Among them, among the sons of disobedience, we, now he's brought himself into it, we, Paul's an apostle. Paul lived a very holy life as a believer. And even he's saying, I once lived like this. We, too, all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we once walked like that. That's describing us. You have to, you have to admit that. You have to know that that was you at one time, because that's what Scripture says, whether you realize it or not. Not only were we once uh, walking according to the world and walking according to the devil, but we had our own desires we were after as well. We can't blame it all on Satan. He was there helping us along, but we had our own desires. 
1 Corinthians 1.12, Paul tells believers to conduct themselves by the grace of God, but unbelievers conduct themselves by the lust of their flesh. That's what the word here means, the, the formerly lived. This isn't the same lived in Greek as we already saw in this passage. It's a different one. It has more to do with how you conduct your life in the specifics. And as an unbeliever, it's all according to the lust of the flesh. What's a lust? It's a strong desire for something, a craving for something that's immoral, that's against God's righteousness. And the context here, it's lust of the flesh. The flesh is not... Your body, I mean, the body was originally created holy. It's been corrupted by sin. But, but the lust of the flesh, the flesh is here as the fallen, corruptible, natural state of man. It's opposed to God. He's just going to keep hammering the fact that people are just born this way. You know, people think everybody is good when they're born. It's just later they get corrupted. And Paul's saying, no, we're born this way. It's, it's in our flesh. It's part of who we are in the natural state. Before God brought us to himself, we were living and chasing after whatever our flesh desired, whatever our sin nature wanted. Just think of flesh as sin nature. The flesh is a sin nature. Even as believers, we still struggle with the flesh. Why? Because there's still some of that indwelling sin that we haven't killed off yet. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident, Paul says in Galatians 5. Listen to this. The deeds of the flesh, what are they? They're evident. Immorality impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envy, and drunkenness, carousing, things like these. And he goes on to warn them. Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. What are the lusts of the flesh? He just gives a whole list in Galatians 5. And certainly you should think, that was me. One of those at least was you. And if you got saved young, you might not realize it, but you had outbursts of anger as a kid. You had envy. You had disputes. Lust of the flesh. We, we not only lived like that, he says, before we got saved, but we indulged in them. Not just the outward acts of the flesh that we indulge in, that we chase after, but he also says the mind. Do you see that? There's this big movement in within Christianity that it's just the things you do outwardly, just your actions. It's not your thoughts. It's not your attractions. In other words, a sin is not a sin till you commit it, they would say. But Jesus says, no, it starts in the mind. And Paul says here, it's of the mind. Do you see that? Indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And it's literally plural in the Greek, of the minds. The idea is your thoughts. Your thoughts are as sinful as well as an unbeliever all the time. Now as a believer, we still have sinful thoughts we have to fight. But he's saying, when you were an unbeliever, all you cared about was your own desires and your own sinful thoughts. That's it. Man apart from God's saving grace is thinking sinfully. The thoughts are sinful. Back to Genesis 6.5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent, listen to this, intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Not just his heart, not just the thoughts of his heart, but the intent of the thoughts of his heart. The whole reason he even thought it in the first place was because of sin. He wanted to sin all the time. So God brings the flood and everything's right. Everybody's happy. Everybody's coming back after the flood perfect. No. Just in case we missed it, God says in Genesis 8, after the flood, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. Soon as he's old enough to start thinking sinful thoughts, he starts thinking sinful thoughts. Titus 1.15. To those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. This is heavy. You look like this is heavy upon you. It should be as, as Christians. This is heavy on our hearts that we once lived like this. And if you're not in Christ, this should really be weighing down on you. Sinful flesh, sinful mind, the devil, the world. John Calvin said, We are so entirely controlled by the power of sin that the whole mind, the whole heart, and all our actions are under its influence. That's a lot right there, but we're not done. There's one more thing Paul has to tell us before he gets to the good news. One more thing, the third main point. Before we came to Christ, we were under God's wrath. We were under God's wrath. This is the result of everything that's already been said. We're dead to sin. We're living in it. We're walking around in it. We're doing whatever the world wants us to do. We're doing what Satan wants us to do. We're doing what we want us to do before we come to Christ. And... As a result of that, God's wrath is upon us. 
he said. We were by nature, verse 3 at the end there, we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Even as the rest. Even as everybody else out there that's an unbeliever, we were just like that in the past, before we came to Christ, before Christ changed us, before Christ saved us. Look at this word, wrath. You know, people are taking words out of hymns these days. So, at the cross we just sang, and, and uh, such a worm as I, a lot of the more modern hymnals, sometimes even in decent churches, those hymnals have been changed. They took the word worm out. That's offensive. Who wants to think of themselves as a worm? Certain liberal denominations, the, the song In Christ Alone, which I think we're singing in the minute, talks about God's wrath in there. They've changed that. They've taken it out because that's offensive. It's offensive enough that we're dead and in our sins and transgressions. But here we have the fact that we're under God's wrath. What is God's wrath? It's the most ignored and forgotten attribute of God. If he's holy, if he's righteous, what does he do with sinners? How does he punish sinners? That's his wrath. His wrath is his divine punishment of sinners in the future judgment. There's already part of God's wrath being poured out upon the world. But it's going to be much worse in the future. Much worse. For, for unbelievers, it's going to be an eternal wrath. God's wrath is necessary because he's holy. He must be wrathful. He must punish sin. He could not be called holy if he didn't punish sin. Now, you've probably heard it said, God hates the sin, but what? Loves the sinner. You've heard it said? That's not biblical. Not in the Bible. Never says that. Now, God has a general love for his creation. God has a love for wanting to see people saved. But God can't punish an idea of sin. It's not like this idea of sin is going to be in hell. Who's going to be in hell forever? Sinners. His wrath is being poured out on sinners. Jesus didn't come to die for sin. He came to die for sinners. Sinners sin. And I can just quote for a few passages in the Bible, multiple places, but let me just show you how that's an unbiblical statement. Because God does indeed punish sinners for their sin. And it says he hates them for it. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. Psalm 5.5. 5. Psalm 11.5. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Ephesians 5.6. Just go forward in your Bibles. Ephesians 5.6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. God hates Sin and sinners. Now, he does have a love. It's his love that sent Christ into the world to save sinners. That's the ultimate example of his love. But what is eternal punishment in hell other than God's hate poured out in his wrath towards sinners? I think David, I think it's David in the Psalms, even says he hates sinners. Now, we should not go around playing God, hating sinners in a wrathful way. That's God's prerogative because he's holy and he's perfectly righteous. But at the same time, we should hate the fact that sin is run rampant in the world. But we should remember that was us at one time. We were under God's wrath. And he's going to pour out his wrath upon all those sinners when Christ returns. Romans 2.5, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath, Paul says to the Jews. You're storing up wrath for yourself. And the revelation of the judgment, the righteous judgment of God. There's a wrath coming upon the world. And God's going to wipe out every unbeliever and put them in a place of eternal torment. And even now, even now, Paul says, there are children of wrath. We, if we're saved, we were once children of wrath. There are still children of wrath out there, all unbelievers. We were by nature children of wrath. We were born into it. A child born into it. Every person born in the world is destined for hell unless they flee to Christ. Unless God saves them, they're destined for hell, the Bible says. The question is not, why doesn't God save everyone, but why does God save anyone? If we are sinners and destined for hell, why does he save anyone? Because he's gracious, because he's merciful. But it has nothing to do with us. Jesus said, John 3, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. We're children of wrath. 
with children wrath before Christ comes. That means it can be changed by God. It can be changed when we flee to Christ. We can, we can get out from the wrath of God and be under Jesus Christ the Son. And then this last thing I'll touch on before I get to application is nature. You see that word? Not only are we sons of disobedience before we're saved, not only are we children of wrath, but it's by nature. This is a big controversy. Are people actually born with a sin nature? What does Paul say? By nature. It's exactly what it sounds like in English. The same, same, same word there in the Greek. It's the same idea, an inherited nature. Something you're born with. Do we become sinners or are we born sinners? Well, we're born with an inherited sin nature and it won't take long before that little one-week-old baby girl is going to start acting out according to her nature. It will happen by nature. This is total depravity. The idea that we're, we're born fully corrupted in every part. The body, spirit, mind, the will, however you want to divide it up. The affections, no matter how you describe a person, it's all corrupted. Bad news. That's the bad news. Next week, we're going to talk about the good news. But let's just stop and look at this passage. And I want to give you a few points of application as we close. It's a heavy passage. It's who we once were. And so we, we need to say to the, to the unbeliever listening today, this isn't who you once were. That's only for Christians. To the unbeliever, it's who you are now. It's who you are now. It's, it's right now. Dead in sins. Living for your own lust and for Satan and for the world. Unless a person flees to Christ, they're going to suffer the wrath of God. Every young person ought to be considering this passage. Every, every young person ought to be looking and, and thinking, am I, am I dead in my sins and trespasses? Am I under the wrath of God? And every adult ought to look at this and say, does this describe me? Because he's talking about who you once were, but am I sure that this doesn't describe me? But the good news, look down at verse 4. I'll give you a little hint. What's coming? 2-4. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised up with him, and seated with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. This, this is describing an unbeliever now but God can change a person's heart. If you call out to God, if you flee to Christ, he's already changed your heart. But beg him for that. Ask him for it now. Don't think you can earn it. That's, that's dead in your sins. I can earn my way. That is, that is just proof that you're dead in your sins. If you say, I can obey. I just, I just need a little bit more church, a little bit more Bible, and I'll get there. No. Flee to Christ. Trust in Him as your Savior. He's the only one that can save. Otherwise, this passage applies to you now. Believers, a point of application is to remember your former state and be humble. Be humble. Sometimes we rail against sin in the world, and that's, that's right. That's righteous. But sometimes we do it in a prideful way. Look at those sinners. You were once like that too. If God hadn't changed your heart, you would still be running with those folks in their sin. Be humble. Don't, don't forget where you once were. Don't forget who you once were. When we consider the great sins which God has forgiven us, we should humble ourselves. We should praise Him for it. We should thank Him for it. Remember your former state and be humble. Also have pity on the lost. This is describing them. I'm a Christian today. It doesn't describe me, but it's describing them. Have pity on them. Have pity on them. Make sure that you've told them about Christ. Invite them to church if you are worried about telling them about Christ, and I'll be telling them about Christ. And then everybody else will tell them about Christ when they talk to them. Here's what Spurgeon said. I love this quote from Spurgeon. Spurgeon believed that man was born in sin. He believed that God had to call them and change their heart before they could come. But he says, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. If they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. Let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. Pray for them. Tell them the gospel. And then lastly, for believers as well, think about evangelism and the church service. If they're dead in their sins, 
If they're running as the world wants them to run, like we once did with Satan, with the lust of our flesh, then we cannot use gimmicks, high-pressure tactics, or any kind of entertainment to bring someone back to life. We can't turn this place into a show to somehow convince them to believe in Christ. They're dead. Dead people would love a show because then they don't have to think about what the Bible says. Dead people would love anything other than the word of God to be preached. We can't do that. We can't do that in the church and we can't do that in personal evangelism. It's not a high pressure sales. You follow these four points and the person's automatically going to become a believer and if they don't, it's your fault. It says, but God in verse four. It doesn't say, but you, but God does it. Your job? To proclaim the message. So let's not turn evangelism into just about tactics or the church service into entertainment and gimmicks. We've got to preach the gospel and let the Holy Spirit do his work and hearts that God has chosen. Well, that's where we once were, thankfully. He's saying that's where we once were as Christians. Thankfully, we have Christ. And we're going to look next week at the grace of God. The grace of God. Lord, we are thankful for your grace. We, we love the fact that you have sent Christ Jesus as your son into the world. He is the eternal son of God. He became flesh. He took on flesh. He humbled himself and he died on the cross for sinners. Sinners which were doomed to hell. And yet he came to save those that you sent him for. And I pray, Lord, that more even in this service today, even in this church body, that the more would be saved. We don't know when Christ is coming back, but until then we know that the gospel will go forth and people will come to Christ because of your grace. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for making us alive again, taking us out of this dead state that we were in. Help us to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen.